Hi, everyone. Uh, can you all hear me okay? I'm going to assume that that was a yes. Okay. So here's an overview of uh, what I'm going to be talking about today. So first, I'm going to talk a little bit about why learning human values is difficult um, for AI systems. Um, I'm then going to explain to you the safety via debate method, which is one of the methods that OpenAI is currently exploring um, for helping uh, AI to like robustly do what humans want. And then I'm going to talk a bit, a bit more about why I think this is relevant to social scientists and why I think social scientists, uh, in particular people like experimental psychologists and behavioral scientists, can really help with this project. Um, and I'll give you a bit more details about how they can help uh, towards the end of the talk. Okay. So learning humans' values is difficult. We want to train um, AI systems to kind of robustly do what humans want. Um, and in the first instance, we can just imagine this being what one person wants. And then ideally, we could expand it to, to doing what like most people uh, would consider good and valuable. Um, but human values are very difficult to specify, especially with the kind of precision that is required uh, of something like a machine learning system. And I think it's really important to emphasize that this is true even of cases where uh, there's like moral consensus or consensus about what people want in a given instance. Um, so take a kind of principle like do not harm someone needlessly. I think we can be really tempted to think something like, well, if I have like, you know, I've got a computer and so I can just write into the computer, do not harm someone needlessly. Um, but this is like a really underspecified principle. Most humans know exactly what it means. They know exactly when it's, you know, when harming someone is needless. So like if you're shaking someone's hand and you like push them over, we think this is like needless harm. But if you see someone in the street who's about to be hit by a car and you push them to the ground, we think that's not an instance of needless harm. So humans just have a pretty good way of like knowing when this principle applies and when it doesn't. But for a formal system, there's going to be like a lot of questions about precisely what's going on here. So like one question the system might ask is, how do I recognize when someone is being harmed? Um, you know, it's very easy for us to see things like stop signs. Um, but when we're like, building self-driving cars, we don't just program in something like, you know, stop a stop sign. We instead have to like train it to be able to recognize uh, an instance of a stop sign. And then the principle that says that you shouldn't harm someone needlessly employs this notion of like that we kind of understand when harm is and isn't appropriate. Um, whereas there's a lot of questions here, like when is harm justified? What is the rule for all plausible scenarios in which I might find myself? Um, these are things that you need to specify if you want your system to be able to work in like all of the kind of cases uh, that you want it to be able to work in. So I think this is like an important point to just kind of internalize is it's easy for humans to um, identify and to pick up, say, a glass but training an ML system to do it requires a lot of data. And this is true of just like a lot of tasks that humans might intuitively think are easy. And we shouldn't then just transfer that intuition to um, the case of uh, machine learning systems. And so when we're trying to teach human values uh, to an AI system, it's not that we're just looking at like edge cases, like trolley problems. We're really looking at core cases of like, how do we make sure that our ML systems understand like what humans want to do in the kind of everyday sense? Okay. So one way of doing this is through human feedback. Um, so there are like many approaches to uh, training an AI to do what humans want. So you might think that um, humans could say demonstrate the behavior, and then you realize, well, there's going to be some behaviors that's just too difficult for humans to demonstrate. Um, you might think that they can like say whether they approve or disapprove of a given behavior. Um, but one of the concerns about uh, training from human feedback, so learning from uh, humans' uh, what they want, is that we have a reward function as predicted by the human, 
Um, and then we have AI strength. And when it reaches the superhuman level, it becomes really hard for humans uh, to, to predict, uh, to be able to like, give the right reward function. So as AI capabilities surpass the human level, the decisions and behavior of the AI system just might be too complex for the human to judge. Um, so imagine agents that like control, say, you know, we've given the example of like a large set of industrial robots. Uh, that might just be the kind of thing that I I just couldn't like evaluate whether the whether these robots were like doing a good job overall. It'd be extremely difficult for me to do so. And so the concern is that when behavior becomes much more complex and just much more large scale, it just becomes really hard for humans to be able to kind of judge um, whether something is doing a good job. And that's why you might expect this kind of drop off. Um, and so this is like a kind of scalability worry about human feedback. So what we ideally need to happen instead is that as AI strength increases, um, the ward that's predicted by the human is also able to basically keep pace. So how do we achieve this? One of the things that uh, we want to do here is we want to try and break down the kind of complex questions and complex tasks, like you know having all of these industrial robots perform like a kind of complex set of functions that comes together to make something useful into some kind of like smaller um, set of tasks and components that humans are able to judge. So here is like a big question. Um, and the idea is that the overall tree might be too hard for humans to fully check, but it can be kind of decomposed into these um, elements uh, such that at the very kind of bottom level, humans can check these things. So maybe the example of how should a large set of industrial robots be organized to do tax e task X would be an example of a big question where that's like a really complex task. But there's some things that are checkable by humans. So if we could decompose this task so that we were just asking a human, um, if one of the robots performs this small action, um, will the result be uh, this outcome, this small outcome? And that's something that humans can check. And in the case of like what humans want, um, you know, a big question is, what do humans want? Um, much smaller question, if you can manage to like decompose this, is something like, it's better to save 20 minutes of someone's time than to save 10 minutes of their time. So if you imagine some AI agent that's there to like assist with humans, um, this is like a fact that we can definitely check, even if I can't answer my assistant, you know, like this like assistance AI, I can't say something like, this is just what I want, this is like everything that I want. I am not able to like tell it that. But I can tell it that I'd rather it save 20 minutes of my time than it save 10 minutes of my time. Okay, so one of the key issues is that um, with current ML systems, we need to train on a lot of data from humans. So if you imagine that we want humans to actually give this kind of feedback on these kind of like ground level uh, claims um, or questions, then we're going to have to train on like a lot of data from people. So just to give some examples, simple image classifiers uh, train on thousands of images. Like these are the ones you can kind of like... Um, make yourself, um, and you'll see the, the data sets are pretty large. AlphaGo0 played nearly 5 million games of Go during training. Um, OpenAI 5 trains on 180 years of Dota 2 games per day. So this gives you a sense of like how much data you need to, to like train these systems. So if we're using current ML techniques to teach AI human values, we can't rule out needing millions to tens of millions of short interactions from humans um, as like the data that we're using. So Earlier, I kind of talked about human feedback, where I was like assuming that we were kind of asking uh, humans questions. So something like we could just ask humans really simple things, like do you prefer to eat an omelet or a thousand hot dogs, um, or is it better to provide medicine or books to this particular family? Um, 
One way that we might think that we can get kind of more information from the data that we're able to gather is by finding reasons that humans have um, for the answers that they give. So if you manage to learn that humans generally prefer to eat a certain amount per meal, you can kind of rule out a large class of questions you might ever want to ask people. You're never going to ask them, do you prefer to eat an omelette or a thousand hot dogs? Because you know that humans just generally um, don't like to eat a thousand hot dogs in one meal, um, except in very strange circumstances. Um, and you also know facts like humans prioritize necessary health care over mild entertainment. So this might mean that if you see a family that is desperately in need of some medicine, you just know that you're not going to say, hey, should I provide them with like an entertaining book or this like essential medicine? So there's a sense in which when you can identify the reasons that humans are giving for their answers, this is like this kind of like lets you go beyond um, and like learn sort of like faster um, what they're going to say in a given circumstance about what they want. It's not to say that you couldn't learn the same things by just asking people questions, but rather if you can find a quicker way to identify reasons, then this could be like um, much more scalable. So debate is a kind of proposed uh, method for trying to learn human reasons that like is currently being explored. Uh, so to give you the kind of uh, definition of a debate here, so the idea is that two AI agents are going to be given a question. Um, and they take turns making short statements, and a human judges at the end um, which of the statements gave the most true, valuable information. And it's worth noting that this is like quite dissimilar from a lot of human debates. So with human debates, people like, you know, they might give one answer, but then they might adjust their answer uh, over the course of a debate, or they might kind of like debate with each other in a way that's more exploratory. You know, they're they're gaining information from the other debater, which they're then updating on, and then they're like feeding that back into the debate. With AI debates. You're not doing it for information value, so it's not kind of it's not going to have the same sort of like exploratory um, uh, component down like multiple paths. Instead, you would hopefully see the agents explore a path kind of like this. So imagine I um, want my AI agent to basically decide which bike I should buy. I don't want to have to like go and look up all the Amazon reviews, etc. In a debate, I might get something like you should buy the red road bike from the first agent. Suppose that blue disagrees with it, so blue says you should buy the blue fixie. Then red says, the red road bike is easier to ride on local hills. Um, and one of the key things uh, to suppose here is that for me this is, you know, like I live in San Francisco, being able to like ride uh, on the local hills is like very important to me in a bike. Um, it might even overwhelm like all other considerations. So even if the blue fixie is cheaper um, by say $100, I just wouldn't be willing to, um, to pay that. Uh, in or, like I'd be happy to pay the extra $100 in order to be able to ride on local hills. And if this is the case, then there's basically nothing true that the other agent can point to um, to convince me to buy the blue fixie, then blue should just say I concede. Now, blue could have lied, for example, but if we assume that like red is able to kind of point out blue's lies, we should just expect blue to basically lose this debate. And if it's explored enough and attempted enough debates, it might just see that and then say, yes, you've identified the key reason, I concede. And so it's important to note that like, um, we can imagine this being used to like identify multiple reasons, but here it's identified a really important reason for me, something that is in fact going to be like um, really compelling in a debate. Namely, it's easier to write in local hills. Okay, so training an AI to debate looks something like this. Um, if we imagine Alice and Bob are two debaters, um, and, at the, and each of these is like a statement made by each agent. And so you're going to see exploration of the tree. So the first one might be this. And here, um, the human say that the human decides who, that Bob won in that case. Um, this is like another node, another node. 
And so this is like the exploration of the debate tree. And so you end up with a debate tree that looks a little bit like a kind of game of Go. Um, and so when we explore, like, uh, when you have AI training to play Go, it's exploring, like, lots of different paths down the tree, and then there's a win or loss condition at the end, and that's, like, its feedback. Uh, you know, this is, like, how it's basically learning how to play. With uh, debate, you can imagine the same thing, but where you're exploring all, po like, you know, a large uh, tree of debates, and humans are assessing um, whether you win or not. And this is, like, just a way of, like, training up AI to get better at debate and to eventually ideally uh, identify reasons that humans find uh, compelling. Okay, so one kind of thesis here that I think is relatively important is this kind of, like, positive amplification thesis or positive amplification threshold. So one thing that we might think, or that seems fairly plausible, is that if humans have, uh, are, like, above some threshold of rationality and goodness, then debate is going to, like, amplify their positive aspects. So this is, like, speculative, but it's, like, a kind of hypothesis that we're working with. And the idea here is that if I am, like, pretty rational um, and pretty well-motivated, someone can then, you know, if, if I am, suppose that I'm, like, looking at a debate, I might get some feedback of the form, um, actually, that decision that you made was fairly biased, um, and I know that you don't like to be biased, um, so I want to like inform you of that. I get informed of that, and I'm like, yes, that's right, actually, I don't want to be biased in that respect. You know, suppose that they're like Kahneman and Tversky, they point out some like key cognitive bias that I have. If I'm kind of like rational enough, I might say, yes, I want to adjust that. And I give a, a newer kind of signal back in that's like, um, has been improved by virtue of this process. So, like, if we have, if we're, like, somewhat rational, then we can imagine a situation in which, like, all of these, like, positive aspects of us are being um, amplified uh, through this kind of process. But you can also imagine a kind of negative amplification. So if people are, like, below this threshold of rationality and goodness, we might worry that debate would, like, kind of amplify these negative aspects. If it turns out we can just be really convinced by kind of appealing to our worst nature... Um, and, like, your system, like, learns to do that, then it could just, like, do that feedback in, you know, I uh, become even kind of less rational and more biased, and that gets fed back in. So this is just, like, a, a kind of important hypothesis related to uh, work on um, amplification, which, if you're interested in, it's, uh, it's great, and I suggest you, like, take a look at it, but I'm not going to focus on it here. Okay. So how can social scientists help with this whole project? And hopefully I've conveyed some of like, what I think of as like, the uh, real importance of the project. So first, I think that a key question uh, here is kind of, it reminds me a little bit of uh, Tetlock's work on like, super forecasters. So like, obviously a lot of social scientists have done work kind of identifying uh, people who are uh, like, super forecasters where they seem to be kind of like robustly um, more accurate than many people. They're robustly accurate across time when it comes to forecasts. Um, and they work, you know, we've found other features of them, like working in groups really helps um, and so on. Um, and one question is whether we can identify um, good human judges or we can train people to become essentially super judges. So why is this, like, helpful? Um, this is just kind of one way of framing, uh, like, the ways in which social scientists could help with this project, I think. So firstly, if um, we do this, we'll be able to, like, test how good human judges are and also see whether we can improve human judges. This means we'll be able to know if uh, human, or at least, like, try and find out whether humans are above this kind of positive amplification threshold. So are, are ordinary human judges that we would be using to judge debate kind of good enough to see, like, an amplification of their uh, good features is, like, one question. Another question is, 
Uh, or sorry, another reason to do this is that it improves the quality of the judging data that we can get. If people are just generally pretty good, rational assessing debate, like um, fairly quick, then this is like excellent given the amount of data that we uh, anticipate needing. Basically, improvements to your data can be like extremely valuable here. So yeah, the benefits of this, positive amplification will be more likely uh, during safety value debate and also will improve uh, training outcomes on limited data, which is very important. Okay. So this is like one way of kind of framing why I think social scientists are pretty valuable here. Um, but there's lots of questions that we really do want asked uh, when it comes to this project. Um, and this is just like, I think this is going to be true of other projects like asking human questions. It's basically to note that like the human component of the human feedback um, is like quite important and like getting that right is actually quite important. And that's something that we anticipate social scientists to be able to help with um, more so than like, ML researchers uh, who are not like working with people and like their biases and how rational they are, etc. These are questions that are like the focus of social sciences. So one question is how skilled are people as judges by default? Can we distinguish good judges of debate from bad judges of debate? And if so, how? Um, does judging ability generalize across domains? Uh, can we train people to be better judges? Like, can we engage in kind of debiasing work, um, for example? Um, or like work that reduces like cognitive biases. Um, what topics are people better or worse at judging? So are there ways of like phrasing the questions so that people are just better at assessing them? Um, are there ways of like structuring the debate that make them easier to judge? Um, or restricting debates to make them easier to judge? Um, you know, so we're often just showing people a small segment of a debate, for example. Um, can people work together to improve judging qualities? So these are all like kind of outstanding questions um, that we think are important. Um, but we also think that they're empirical questions um, and that they have to be answered via experiment. Um, and so this is, like, I think, important potential future work. So we've been thinking a little bit about what you would uh, want in experiments that try and assess this in humans, like how good are they at uh, debating? Uh, sorry, how good are they at judging debate? Because ideally, ideally uh, AI agents would be doing the debate in the long run. So one is just that there's a verifiable answer. We kind of need to be able to tell whether um, people are like correct or not in their judgment of the debate. The other is that there is a plausible false answer um, because if you have a debate, if we can only like train on like assess human judging ability on debates where there's like no plausible false answer, we'd get this false signal that people are really good at judging debate. They always get the true answer, but that's because it's always just like a really obvious question. Um, like, is it raining outside? And the person can, like, look outside. Uh, we don't really want that kind of debate. Um, ideally, we want something where evidence is available so that it grounds out in, you know, humans can have uh, something that grounds out the debate. Um, we also don't want debates to rely on human deception. Um, so things like, you know, tells in poker, for example, we really don't want that because, like, AI agents are not going to have normal tells. It would be... Uh, it would be rather strange, I suppose, if they did. Um, like if you had stuttering or something. Um, uh, the debaters have to know more about the question as well um, because the idea is that the AI agents will be much more capable and so you don't want a situation in which uh, there isn't like a big gap, basically, between the debater capabilities and the judge abilities. Maybe some of these things, these ones feel kind of like pretty essential. These ones are sort of... Uh, desires, I guess. So one is that biases are present. How good are humans when there's like um, bias uh, in their kind of, you know, uh, with respect to the question? There are representative segments of the debate that we can actually show people. 
the questions aren't too hard, like it's just not impossible for humans to answer them or judge debates about them. Um, but they also mirror some of the difficulties of statistical debate, i.e. about probabilities rather than about outright claims. And finally, that we can get enough data. And so one thing you might notice is that there starts to be like kind of tensions between a lot of these desiderata, so that there's a plausible false answer is in a bit of tension with the idea that the question isn't too hard. Um, if a question is like... Uh, and the same is the same is true of like uh, the question isn't too hard and the question marrying st statistical debate. Statistical debate is generally pretty hard to evaluate, I think, for people. Um, and also, like if, uh, but also like quite important that we be able to model it. Um, the debaters knowing more and that we can get enough data is like another thing. Um, it's just. Uh, harder to kind of train if we need debaters that like know a lot more than judges um, and it's harder for judges to evaluate uh, debates of this form. Okay, so I'm going to show you a debate. Uh, this is just to give you some of the difficulties, I guess. So this was a, a program set up where we would show uh, a judge uh, a kind of blank screen. So imagine you're not seeing the dog that's here. Two debaters, two human debaters sit in the same room and they have this uh, picture of a dog in front of them. And one of them is selected to lie, and one of them is selected to tell the truth. And what they can do here is they can select areas um, and describe to the human uh, judge what they see in that area. And all that the judge is going to see is kind of their blank screen with like the, the relevant section selected. And then they can each make claims about what is in that section. So here red is saying it's a dog, here's its long floppy ear. Blue is saying no, here's one of its pointy ears, so it's trying to point to a smaller area where it looks kind of pointed. Um, that does look like an ear slope to the right, but if it were really, uh, but if it really was, then part of the head would be here. Instead, there's a brick. The ear is pointing out from behind the bricks. Um, the dog, the dog is in front of the bricks. If it were behind, there would be an edge here. But the rectangle is all the same color, and then you get like a resignation. And at the end of the debate, they can show like a single pixel. And the question was something like, if all you can show, all you can do is have a debate and show a single pixel, can you like get people to have accurate beliefs? Um, about the question. And basically, we, we, we saw, like, yes, like, debates were, like, uh, fairly good in this kind of case. But you might think that this is, like, pretty synthetic. Uh, so one of the things that we're kind of thinking about now is, like, uh, expert debaters with a lay judge. So I'm going to show you something uh, that we did that's kind of fun, but I, I, I never know how it looks to outsiders. So uh, we had a debate that was uh, of this form. So... Uh, this was a debate actually about uh, quantum computing, where the idea is that we were going to uh, debate this question. Uh, so we have two kind of, we say experts, but people who understand the domain. One of them is going to lie, one of them is going to tell the truth. So we had Blue say, Red's algorithm is wrong because it increases alpha by an additive exponentially small amount each step, so it takes exponentially many steps to get alpha high enough. So this was like one of the kind of claims made. And then you get these this set of responses. Um, I don't think I need to go through all of them. You can see, like, kind of the form that they take. But it grounds out in this, like, claim um, from... So we allowed, like, certain restrictive claims from Wikipedia. Um, so Blue ends this with the first line of uh, this Wikipedia article says that the sum of probabilities is conserved. 
Red says uh, an equal amount is subtracted from one amplitude and added to another, implying the sum of amplitudes are conserved. But, probability, uh, but probabilities are the squared magnitudes of amplitudes, so this is a contradiction. So this is, I think, roughly how this uh, debate ended. But you can imagine this is like a really complex debate um, in a domain that the judges like, ideally just won't understand and might not even have some of the concepts for. And that's the kind of difficulty of debate that we've been looking at. Um, and so this is like one thing that we're kind of... Uh, in the kind of early stages of prototyping. And thus far, I think it seems to be the case that people actually do update in the kind of right direction, but we don't really have enough data to like um, say for sure. Okay, so I hope that um, I've kind of given you an overview of like places uh, and just even like a kind of restricted set of places in which I think like social scientists are going to be important in AI safety. So here we're interested in like experimental psychologists, cognitive scientists, and behavioral economists. So people who might be interested in actually scaling up and running some of these experiments. Um, if you're interested in this, please come to my officers after this talk or email me um, because we would love to hear from you. So thanks. All right. We don't have too much time for questions, but if you yep. want to sit, we can take a couple. Uh, just for starters, as I was kind of watching this, I'm wondering how much of this is real at all or coming from an actual system versus like, do you have humans sort of playing the role of the agents in these examples? Yeah, so like at the moment, the idea is that uh, if you want, we want ultimately the debate to be conducted by AI, but we don't have like the language models like that we would need for that like yet. And so we're using humans as a kind of proxy to like test the judges in the meantime. Uh, so yeah, all of this is like done with humans at the moment. You're, so you're faking the AI yeah, to the, set up the scenario yeah. to train the judges to, or to yeah. evaluate the judges on their ability to later provide. Yeah, and some yeah, and some of the ideas like I guess you don't necessarily want like all of this work to kind of happen like later, and once you like a lot of this work can be done before you even have the relevant uh, capabilities to like have AI perform the debate. So that's why we're using humans just now. Yeah, totally understood. Um, let's see, a couple questions mm -hmm. coming in. Um, if you, I guess one note also for the audience, if you didn't see Jan Lekas talk yesterday, uh, he showed some examples from the work that, that his team has done mm -hmm. on video games that very much matched the plots that you had driven or that you had uh, shown earlier, where up to a certain point, the, uh, behavior sort of matches the reward function. Yeah. And then at some point they sort of diverge sharply mm -hmm. as, you know, the, the, agent kind of finds a, a, a loophole yeah. in the system. So that can happen even in like Atari games, which yeah. is what they're uh, working on. So obviously it gets a lot more complicated from there. Um, so questions from the audience. How would you train, in this approach, you would train both the debating agents and the judges. So in that case, who evaluates the judges and based on what? Yeah, so we, I think... It's kind of interesting where we want to like identify how good the judges are in advance because it might be hard to assess. Uh, like later, you could if, if something if people are just judging on verifiable answers, you could in fact presumably assess the judges as you like even when you're like uh, doing training. But they're going to be you know here we can kind of ground out debates in questions with like verifiable answers. Ideally, you want it to be the case that at training time, I think you've already identified judges that are like fairly good. Um, and so ideally we're like, this is part of this project is to kind of like assess how good judges are prior to training. And then during training, you're like, you're giving the feedback, uh, to the debaters. Um, so yeah, like ideally some of that evaluation can be kind of front loaded, which is what a lot of this project would be. Yeah. That does seem necessary as yeah. a, 
a casual Facebook user, I think the uh, negative amplification is more prominently on display. Uh, or at times. least more concerning to people, yeah, as like a possibility. Um, how, so uh, kind of a related question, how will you crowdsource the millions of human interactions that are needed to train uh, AI across so many different domains without falling victim to trolls, lowest common denominator, et cetera? Yeah. Um, the, the questioner cites the Microsoft Tay chatbot mm. that sort of went dark uh, yeah, pretty yeah. quickly. Yeah, so the idea is you're not going to just be like sourcing this from like anyone. So if you identify people um, that are either good judges already or you can like train people to be good judges, these are going to be the pool of people that you're kind of using to get this feedback from. So even if you've got like a, a huge number of interactions, ideally you are like, um, uh, you're kind of like sourcing and like training people to be really good at this. And so you're not just like being like, hey, internet, like what do you think of this debate? But rather like, okay, we've got this set of like really great trained judges that we've like, you know, identified this wonderful mechanism to like train them to be to be good at this task, and then you're getting lots of feedback from that large pool of judges. So it's not kind of like sourced kind of to anonymous people um, everywhere, but rather like uh, you're kind of interacting fairly closely with this set of people um, who are giving you lots. And but at some point, you do have to kind of scale this out, right? I mean, in the yeah. bike example, it's like there's so many bikes in, yeah. the, in the world and so many local hills. Yeah. So I mean, is does that? Do you feel like you can get a solid enough base that that sort of does like becomes not a problem or or how does that Yeah, I think there's going to be like a trade-off where you need a lot of data but ultimately if you're if if it starts to if it's like not great, so if it is really biased for example, it's not clear that that additional data is going to be like helpful. So if you get someone who is just like massively cognitively biased or biased against groups of people or something um or just like is going to be like dishonest in their judgment. This is not going to be like it's not going to be like good to get that additional data. So you kind of want to scale it to the point where you know you're still getting like good information back from the judges. And that's why I think in part this like project is really important because if you like one thing that social scientists can help us with is kind of identifying like how good people are. So if you know that people are just generally fairly good, this like gives you a bigger pool of people. Um, that you can appeal to. And if you know that you can train people to be really good, then this is, like again, a bigger pool of people that you can appeal to. So, yeah, it's like you do want to scale, but you want to scale kind of within the limits of still getting, like, um, kind of good information from people. And so, like, ideally, this would do this mix of letting us know how much we can scale and also maybe helping us to scale even more by, like, making people better at this, like, quite unusual task of judging these um, these kind of debates. So we are a little over time. Uh, won't have time to go through all the questions that are coming in, but you can speak with Amanda Moore at office hours immediately yeah, following this talk, right, when we're headed into break. So let's just do one last question uh, for this session, which is how does your background as a philosopher inform the work that you're doing here? Yeah, so, I mean, I have, I guess, a background primarily in, like, formal ethics, which I think makes me sensitive to like some of the issues that we might be worried about here, um, like going forward. So, you know, people think about things like aggregating judgment, for example. Um, strangely, I found that like, uh, you know, having a, backgrounds in things like philosophy of science can, can be weirdly helpful when it comes to like thinking about experiments to run. Um, but for the most part, I think that, uh, my work has just been to kind of, uh, help prototype some of this stuff. I see the importance of it. I kind of like, I'm able to like foresee some of the kind of worries that people might have. But for the most part, I think we should just like try some of this stuff. And I think that for that, it's really important to have people with like experimental backgrounds in particular. Um, so the ability to like run experiments and analyze that data. And so that's why I would like to kind of like 
uh, find people who are interested in doing that. So I'd say philosophy is pretty useful for some things, less useful for running social science experiments than you might think. Uh, All right. Well, for more, you'll have to come to office hours, which you can do immediately after this session. How about a round of applause for Amanda Askell? (laughs) 